Mark Britnell's hospital credentials are well established. A 26-year career in the NHS and private sector, from running hospital trust to a stint at the Department of Health, to his current position as global lead on healthcare at KPMG. This has all given him an oversight into how healthcare around the globe is run, and he's pulled that together into a book published last week, and he joins us in the studio to talk about how it all works and to discuss what's happening in the NHS right now. So, hi Mark, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me in. If we start at the end with your conclusions, you unequivocally say that uh, single payer is best, perhaps not in terms of making sure cutting edge technology gets uh, implemented, but certainly in terms of cost and overall uh, population health. Um, Now, obviously, we've got the NHS in the UK, which is a single payer and also a single provider. So does that make a difference to your view? Well, I I don't think so particularly. Um, Let's talk about funding and financing first. I have worked in 60 countries, and because I've spent all my professional uh, career in healthcare, um, I think I'm in a pretty good position to understand what works. And I unequivocally say that um, a single-payer or dominant-payer system is best for better population health, better patient care, and better taxpayer value. The best system is a system that has an overview of the health system, that cares as much about population health as it does about the individual patient, and also pays due regard and respect to the taxpayer. So unequivocally, I think um, a single or dominant... When I say dominant, if you look at, uh, say, for example, Japan, it has literally hundreds of insurance companies. Some are linked to the uh, employer. uh, Some are linked to the class of person. But effectively, the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Health set prices every two years. So that's a dominant Mm. payer. And basically, because we have such an explosion in long-term conditions and an ageing population, at least in most parts of the developed world, a single-payer system that can appreciate and uh, react to that, I think is the most progressive form of funding and financing. And if you push me further, I would say taxation is the most efficient and effective way of raising those funds, although there are variations on on a theme. In terms of uh, hospitals and who runs and provides them, I think um, I've seen uh, models work all over the world. I've seen some great... Um, private or independent hospitals in India um, uh, produce very high quality care at a fraction of the cost of the West. I I talk about some of our brilliant academic health science centres in in the UK and also look at what's going on in Singapore, Korea, Japan, as well as the States, Mexico and Brazil. I think what's most important for organisations or hospitals is that they realise the nature of care is changing that they are less fortifications and see themselves more part of a health system. And of course, I go on in my book to conclude that we all have to try and make integration work because um, certainly in my career over the last three decades or so, we've moved from a focus on episodic care and treatments into looking at care as a continuum and making sure that patients get better integrated care. And of course, that's always easier said than done. Absolutely. And um, to go back to to having a sort of plurality of providers who are 
trying to provide holistic care across a you know a number of pathways. That was a big um, criticism of the recent changes that, that Andrew Lansley brought in into the NHS. And I think um, our readers would say that some of their fears are being borne out about um, essentially the fragmentation of services. So do you think that is possible to actually do with with many providers? Yeah, well, if, if you look at uh, my chapter on uh, England, it's entitled The NHS in Place of Fear. So I praise the fact that the British, uh, the UK, was the first country after the Second World War to promote universal health care. And then there's the old joke, of course, that the NHS is brilliant, save the fact that it's separated primary from secondary care and social from health care. And of course, now we're coming to realise that we need to better integrate those um, forces. I also say that uh, in the 26 years I've worked in healthcare, and I got my researchers to look back on this, there have been no less than 12 or 14, depending on how you count them, national policy reforms. So that works out at a gestation period of two and a half years. So along with the 2012 Act, which I understand people's concerns over, we are changing policy uh, far too often. In fact, I think I make the quote that the NHS is an overactive policy thyroid that needs medication. Mm. And if we, if there were an Olympic Games for um, changing our health system, the, the UK or the NHS would, would take gold medal. So I understand the concerns of people over the 2012 Act because I think most people uh, then and, and now really were clamouring for uh, integration. Of course, the, the trap that many health systems fall into is they think by integrating bureaucratic structures, that means that care is integrated for the patient, and that's simply not the case. So the best examples I've seen about patient activation, patient empowerment, patient control, are where systems are designed uh, to focus on the patient and their needs. And when you do that, there is some evidence that's been produced um, that suggests that the consumption of care reduces by between 8 and 21 percentage points. Now, that's not my work. That's Mm. the work of uh, very distinguished bodies and academics. And even if it's half true, it's worth pursuing because, frankly, I haven't seen a system in the world that can maintain its sustainability unless it activates patients. And that means more control with and for patients, more responsibility by patients, and the clinical professions, the caring professions, doing even more to make sure that patients feel they understand their disease or the nature of their disease, Mm. and they're encouraged to do more about it themselves. I don't say that because I want to reduce the amount of uh, expenditure in healthcare. I simply say that because of the demographic forces that are facing all systems. And unless you have an activated patient, there won't be a system in the world that's sustainable. The the dependency ratios now between those in work and those of older age is changing so, so quickly across the developed world that, as you can see in my book, um, I call for a more mature and long-reaching conversation about this because it's hurtling towards us. We like playing or skirting around issues in in the UK. We're not the only country that Mm. likes playing around with issues. But we need to bite the bullet because, as we all know, the quicker you tackle your problems, the easier your problems become. Yeah. So talking about that, um, obviously Simon Stevens has his five-year forward plan. We've had a year of that already. Do you think that is tackling those problems enough or is that 
discussing on issues. No, I, I absolutely think that the work that Simon and NHS England have done on the five-year forward view is is the right framework in terms of looking at integrating primary and secondary care or health and social care or physical and mental care. I think these are all ideas, of course, um, that have been captured uh, in my book and ideas that I think uh, have been long overdue in the uh, NHS. Of course, they slightly tilt at the 2012 reforms because mm. at their heart, we have to think about cooperation and collaboration and integration as opposed to competition and fragmentation. Once again, my book is very clear on, on the need for in integration. But I think it's, a, it's, a, it's refreshing and it's a breath of fresh air. Of course, the real issue, uh, the £20 gorilla, is the, is the financial challenge. And uh, I'm not sure uh, on what assumptions the 30 billion efficiency challenge uh, were based. I, I understand the numbers. But of course, these are long-term projections and things change very quickly. So I think that the money is going to be potentially a, a real big issue as we're seeing played out. And of course, only last week, the NHS posted a nigh on 1 billion deficit after the first quarter. So I guess what I'm saying is the NHS five-year forward view is a fantastic uh, visionary document that says the right things, that's in keeping with all of the good global trends going around the world. But our efficiency challenge at the moment is greater than most health systems I've worked in. Absolutely. Now, sticking with finance, um, the, the current current government say they're going to put another eight billion in um, to to with efficiency savings to meet that 30 billion target um, and it's obvious uh, there's a very handy table in the back of your book with um, the relative spending in, in different uh, countries and the NHS comes fairly low down on that I mean do you think we just have to spend some more money uh, on the NHS we have to fundamentally increase the level of expenditure that we uh, give to the NHS and we have to encourage the NHS to change as quickly as possible to meet the demographic uh, tsunami that's facing us and facing all countries. Mm. In my book, I'm very clear. I think the NHS is a fantastic construct. It provides very efficient and very effective care. And certainly compared to our OECD uh, comparator countries, we hold our heads high. Further, if you look at some of the mainland European countries, such as the Netherlands, Switzerland, Germany or France, mm. they spend between 2 and 2.5% of their GDP more on healthcare. And whilst we've still got some issues with cancer outcomes, as I go back and talk about the balance between population health, patient care and taxpayer value... I think our system stands up very well. So if you're asking me a question, does the NHS need more money? The answer is yes. Obviously, just before the election, all the parties put their best and final offers <laughs> to the people. And the Conservatives have pledged uh, £8 billion in line with Simon's uh, demands. And uh, that will go some way towards meeting the challenge. But I think we all know that it won't be enough over the next 10 years or so. And, of course, if you look back over history then most developed countries since the Second World War tend to spend, on average, and this is a gross generalisation, about 1% of their GDP more each decade because obviously our life expectancy is increasing roughly by uh, an extra year of life every four or five years, depending on what country you're looking at. And the, I think the good, the good news or the optimistic news that I try to cling on to is 
because the UK is now growing at a faster rate than most developed economies, certainly it's growing the fastest across the G7, then we will have to have a debate about the proceeds of that growth flowing back into health and also education. And I say in my book that in terms of being a great leveller in terms of society, um, in terms of the looking at the, the coefficient, the Gini coefficient and fairness, then investments in health and education are the best investments you can make in your nation's future. So uh, if you're asking me, does the NHS have enough money? The answer is no. Um, clearly, we just voted at the last election and we voted uh, for whichever party we thought could yeah. lead the country. But quite simply put, yeah, the NHS is tremendous value for money and it needs to commit more of its GDP over time to healthcare. And I hope that that historical trend will continue um, and it can't continue soon enough. Now, another kind of capital is human capital. Um, and uh, do you think that the current government is squandering some of that human capital at the moment in a way that will impact on uh, not just you know pay, but, but on how the NHS is going to operate going forwards? Well, <clears throat> two or three things first. The... There is no doubt across the globe now there is a shortage of well-trained doctors and nurses. And I use that as a shorthand for all of the caring professions. Um, the World Health Organization estimates a vacancy rate or a need of 7 million doctors and nurses. So the first thing to say is that uh, we need to treasure and respect all of our existing workforce because no one's getting younger and everyone's getting older. And therefore, because there is this global sh shortage, we need to make sure that we are treating people with the respect that they deserve. That's the first point. The second point is there have been numerous studies from different industries, including healthcare, that if you treat people with respect and give them the right autonomy and authority, then they will produce better and more work for you. So I spend a whole chapter in my book uh, on workforce. It's called Value Walks. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle is There is no healthcare without the workforce. So I think you need to treasure and respect, but also motivate clinicians. And that means giving them accountability as well as responsibility. And certainly in our work, we see productivity gains of 15%. And that's much more about the carrot than it is about the stick. So coming back to your question, I, I hope that people can uh, get around the table and talk maturely about it. Of course, everyone wants a 24-7 service. And of course, we've got too many demarcations in our, uh, in our NHS, perhaps, that, that don't always suit patient needs. But fundamentally, there is a global shortage of clinical staff and value walks. And that means that some clinical staff will vote with their feet. Mm. So we need to treasure and support and motivate our staff. It's very difficult that people think the, the next five years are just more cost-cutting. And that's why we have to think about how we motivate staff. And, and in a sense, that means a much more honest conversation about the give and the get between organisations and their employees. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that bludgeoning people isn't a way to make them feel better about their jobs. And we know that happy clinical teams provide better and happier care for patients. So I just really hope that people negotiate and tread carefully because trust takes decades to build up but moments to lose. Mm. I mean, could you, you, uh, you ran hostels, you ran a, a, a large um, trust. 
could you give us some insight into what um, you know managers and things wouldn't be worrying about at, at the moment? Because um, it seems like a lot of this negotiation, a lot of the antagonism is perhaps outside of their immediate control. Well, of course, th- this isn't the first negotiation about pay terms and conditions that the government uh, or governments have, have uh, initiated over the years. I, I remember being chief executive at University Hospital Birmingham when we had the new consultant contract. Mm. And honestly, what chief execs locally try to do is protect their staff and have honest and direct communication with their staff while there's a lot of crossfire going on nationally. So uh, speaking honestly and realistically, people, in a sense, try to insulate their organisations and their staff from the worst excesses of public negotiation, and, and that's, of course, through the media. Um, it works to a certain extent. I find if you've got good local relationships that are trusting relations, ship, sorry, that people uh, are sensible and do go about their, their business and their care properly. But of course, um, when uh, the ante has been upped in terms of the negotiation and people's positions on either side seem to be getting more dogmatic, then you do worry because, uh, once again, you can have bitter negotiations, but that taste lingers for a long time. And at the end of the day, our doctors and nurses still need to care for our patients and someone's got to care for them to make sure that they can do their job properly. So I, I hope that's answered your question. You, you try to avoid it as much as possible. You're mindful of it, but you try to create as best an atmosphere as you can uh, locally. Mm. And I'm sure that people up and down the country are, are doing that. You know, lots of my friends are doctors and nurses and and managers and um when you speak to them about what they want to do, they just want to provide really good patient care and they want as little as possible to get in the way of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talk about the sort of Stokovite call of um, the NHS, so people consistently and as a culture of exceeding what is contracted, what your kind of basic uh, uh, duties are. Um, and I suppose that's in evidence in the fact that... Uh, the NHS has one of the lowest doctor-to-bed ratios. Um, do you think that's something that is actually sustainable? Well, um, first of all, if you try and cost um, everybody's hours, you end up valuing nothing. Hmm. So you can know the price of everything, the cost of nothing, and the value of absolutely diddly squat. So I think it's important to hold people to account for the hours that they work. But we're in a professional culture and professionals treat each other with respect. They know the levels of accountability and responsibility they're supposed to carry. So um, the first thing I would say is that I don't think there are very many people in the NHS that don't work more than the hours uh, that they're contracted to do so. And and most of those people do so happily uh, and merrily as well. But of course, uh, if you're now trying to tamper with that, where you're fundamentally attacking people's intrinsic motivation to do good, then you play with that at your peril. Um, So I I think it's very important, again, as I said, to keep in, in mind that there is a global shortage of doctors and nurses. And therefore, we need to make sure that we motivate them personally I think there's much more to be had by having clear and explicit objectives, both at an individual and team level, and holding clinical teams to account transparently for what they do in terms of quality, safety, patient experience, 
and value for money. I'd like to see much greater clarity and objectives. And I think that would lower the levels of mistrust and demonstrate that people are really working to the limits of their um, ability. To answer your question specifically, is goodwill running out? Then I think the answer is probably yes. I don't think the medical profession is the only profession in the world where goodwill is running out. You certainly see other professions in other industries where this relentless pursuit of transparency and this pursuit of globalisation and and 24-7 services driven by the patient or the consumer is challenging the nature of professionalism. So once again, I, I think we have to have a mature conversation about what that what it means to be a doctor in the 21st century because it's not going to stand still and we can't go back to uh, Dr Kildare either. And you have to do that maturely and responsibly, but you have to do it where parties trust each other, otherwise they fear the motives and therefore the consequences of any negotiation. And I don't think we've got that balance right. Mm. So... Given the need for integration and an increase in sort of patient-centred care, um, an increasingly demotivated workforce who may withdraw their kind of discretionary labour, um, the 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 tightening purse strings. Um, I mean, you were uh, an advisor to government. Um, what would you say to them now about what they should be doing to? to tackle the challenges that the NHS faces and really get it um, fit and running as the country would like it to? Well, it's a very, very big question, and I'll try and answer it in in four parts. The first thing is you have to value and motivate your workforce. And as I've said, I think you need to give them clear and explicit objectives which look at quality, safety, patient experience and value for money. You have to have good, honest, local conversations where clinicians hold their organisation to account and their organisation holds them to account. The best uh, healthcare organisations in the world get 15% more productivity and discretionary effort by doing that. And imagine if that happened across the NHS, what an explosion of quality and care and support for our staff we would get. So I think that's the most important thing that we don't think about the policies or the taxonomy of change mm-hmm. but we remember there is no healthcare without the workforce so that's the first thing I would do the second thing I think we need to do uh, as I know the BMJ is trying to do is start to change the nature of the debate between the professionals the politicians and the patients and by that I mean patients do and should take more responsibility for their care I don't mean paying to see a GP But when you've got 17 or 18 million people with long-term conditions, and soon we'll have 20% of our population aged over 65, we have to think about how we use technology, how we leverage the scarce skills of our clinical staff, and how we start to stream and channel different care services to different people. We're not all the same. And whether we like it or not, we are different and people are much more aware of their differences now so the second thing we need to do is a, is a big um, I think a big push on patient engagement and patient empowerment supported by technology the third thing we need to do is we need to make sensible efficiencies without breaking the level of trust between the health service and its staff and the health service and its patients and the health service and its citizens I mean I do say in the book that um, you know, during the Olympics, um, people were asked what made them most proud to be British. And uh, the number one was the NHS. It beat the armed forces, the Olympic squad, and the royal family. 
And then another question was asked, and 72% of British people said we must do everything we can to preserve what's best about the NHS. So this runs very deep. So the third thing I'm saying is, yes, there are uh, efficiencies to be made, but we shouldn't be broken on the anvil of 30 million, sorry, 30 billion, because that's an assumption. And people don't work on assumptions. They're not real. So we have to prudently and sensibly save what we can. And then fourthly, we will have to have this debate about what we want from the NHS. It's said every 10 years, because every 10 years, the, the NHS, uh, like many health services, grows at roughly 1% of GDP. So that will need to come as well. Now, whether that comes in the next two years or not, given that our government is trying to pay down debt because it's worried about increasing inflation rates, which will uh, increase the cost of our borrowing. So it's very delicate. I understand that. But if you put these four things together, the motivation uh, and support of staff uh, being held to account and holding people to account, the empowerment of patients and the exploitation of technology, the need for efficiency but not to be broken by the need for efficiency, and a sensible conversation about what we need for the future, looking at what's going on globally, then I just hope if you put those four things together, you have a health service that can move forward as opposed to at the moment, I think, is being is being crushed by this 30 billion number, which uh, I, don't, I don't think people get motivated by. Everyone understands the need for value for money. I mean, you know, we've all got our own household budgets. We, we get it. But if you ask the impossible of people, people give up. If you show them what's possible, they often rise to the challenge. You've been listening to Mark Britnell talk about health systems. And you can read more in his book, In Search of the Perfect Health System, which is out now.